Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. excited today to be joined with my good friend Carl Chin and so Carl you're joining me from sunny Colorado how are you doing today it is sunny in Colorado today so it, I'm doing very well and uh, it's just a beautiful day out here Simon uh, good Carl and it's um really good to catch up with you I know that we're supposed to see each other towards the end of this year but if anyone listens to this podcast later they'll realize that 2020 was a bad year for the coronavirus but i keep praying that we're going to be together in october uh, and my my sort of people here in minneapolis are going to get you here and spread the, spread your good word well I, i'm looking forward to it i'm i'm believing it will happen simon yeah and you know Carl, the, the conversation i've been sent to you for a while and i know this isn't we should say to the people watching this this isn't the first time we tried to have this conversation we, we stop we start we stop um, but the, the Who I Became series is, you know, talking to people such as yourself and really understanding, you know, I hear a lot of interviews, I watch a lot of interviews, and it's always about, you know, coaching. You've had a couple of major events that have happened in your life, and we'll talk about those surrounding deadly force incidents. And I've been privileged and odd enough to get to know you and even call you um, a friend and, and sometimes even dad because there's, there's that age gap between us. I, I, w I would say beyond friend to good friend. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I consider you, you a very good friend, Simon. And I think there's some things that we don't necessarily know about who Carl Chin is. And, and that's what this Who I Became series is really about, is getting to know the people behind the accolades, the accomplishments or the journeys that they've been on to sort of understand, you know, who they are as individuals. So I guess... I know, Cole, that your book, and actually I was going to bring it with me and I've, I've left it left it upstairs, but even Invade Sanctuary, that you wrote after events at New Life, you know, you've sold around 10,000 copies of that book. Mm -hmm. I know that you have spoken in pretty much every state in the US about safety and security, either with Jimmy and um, Dave Grossman, the Sheepdog Seminars, or for your own um, faith-based um, security network. Mm -hmm. But one of the key questions that I don't know about you, Carl, and I guess a lot of other people might not know this, is how did Cold Chin come to faith? Well, that's that's a topic I I love talking about, and uh, uh, May is the time of year when when that happened. I grew up in a in a Pentecostal home. Uh, my my parents were solid Christians. Both of my older brothers were solid Christians, still are. Grandparents on both sides, as far back as we can go, uh, followed the Lord. But I came along and <laughs> I, I, I got in tune with a different drum at a young age. And I was wild, and we'll just leave that at that. Um, okay, wild. Okay, we'll come back to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we may come back to that word a time or two, but uh, uh, in 1978, I met a girl that just rocked my world. She swept me off my feet in ways that I was unprepared for, <clears throat> and uh, I'll just tap into that wild thing just a little bit and tell you I used to drive by her home out on the farm where she lived, and I'd be drunk as a skunk and telling my friend that was driving the car with me, 
I'm gonna date that girl. <laughs> and uh, so I was pretty persistent and uh, we wound up dating and getting married. Uh, we got married in 1978. So this year will be, uh, let's see, this will be our 40, 42nd anniversary coming yeah. up in July. And uh, she still takes my breath away. Wow. But in 1979, <clears throat> we had our first baby and we went into the delivery room and uh, it was early. And the nurse that checked us in looked at my wife's due date. <clears throat> and this was a little rural hospital. And she, I'll never forget, she said, my goodness, I hope you don't have this baby tonight. This won't be good. Well, to my, to my pregnant wife, that just scared her to death. And uh, then another, a nun came in, actually, a Catholic nun came in. And uh, she was altogether different with my wife, just put her at ease, made her feel very comfortable, said, oh, you can, lots of babies are born this early and it won't be a problem at all. You're doing fine. You know, I just started blessing her. And, but we, we also knew that it was early. And uh, so Jason was born. He was just a little over four pounds. And... Uh, I kept looking at Dina's belly because I knew that a girl doesn't lose it all as soon as she has the baby. But I thought, wow, that's still pretty big. And the doctor. So you took basic biology at school then, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> doctor come back over there and he looked at her and he said, wow, there's another one in there. Wow. And that's the first we realized we were having twins but they were premature and uh, they went through some really hard times mm -hmm. and they were rushed out to Wichita. We were a small uh, farming community in central Kansas. We didn't have uh, prenatal stuff. We, we didn't have, uh, oh, what's the word for it? Uh, premature, premature baby care stuff in our little farm community hospital so they had to uh we didn't even have an ambulance that would take those babies and uh so they had already called the ambulance when jason was born and then had to call it again and they'd already left the hospital and said you better bring two incubators because we've got two <laughs> and the ambulance had to turn around go back to wesley medical center and get another uh come rigged for two and uh, those were touch-and-go days. And having grown up in the church, I had seen a lot of uh, what people called miracles, and I called them, uh, you know, circumstances, and I was very cynical. And after our boys had been in the hospital for over a week, they were born on a Saturday, and Monday, a week and two days later, my mom asked me if I'd called the hospital that morning, and I told her, no, I haven't. She said, we really want you to call because we believe the Lord answered prayers last night. And I, I just didn't want to hear that. You know, I, I was rebellious, and, and uh, I thought these kids are going to make it because of medical uh, ability, uh, or they're not going to make it. And it's got nothing to do with God. 
is what I thought. But I went ahead and called, and uh, I called Corey's room first. He was in what we called intermediate care. And I talked to his nurse, and I said, I'm Corey Chen's dad, and I'd like to talk to my wife. And she said, well, your wife just left with him. I said, left where? She said, I don't care. Uh, I said, but you, because they had lost weight after they were born, and the hospital had been telling us they're not going to let them go until they're four pounds. And I said, well, there's no way he's four pounds. She said, I know. But she said the doctor felt like uh, the best place that little boy could be is at home with his mama. And I said, well, connect me to intensive care so I can talk to Jason's nurse. And she said, oh, Jason and improved so much through the night that he's now with me. And, and it, was, it was the first real time, Simon, that I saw that God was interested in me and my life and that he was answering prayers because, I mean, it, it was really, truly remarkable from just the day before my conversations with the hospital. Don't get your hopes built up. This is a long time thing. They're going to, you know, I learned terms about Billy Rubens and jaundice and all those kind of things that I'd never even knew existed and didn't want them in my vocabulary. But, uh, <clears throat> and they were telling me that this is a long haul thing. It's going to be a long time before they can come home. Then the next day they let them go. They let the first one go, and they brought Jason up from intensive care. So I, I, I saw this, and uh, that was in February of 1979. And uh, <clears throat> I hauled hay for a living in those days. Uh, I was gonna say, I've out, never out asked you what you did before working yeah. at a church, so I'm glad I, that's coming out. I hauled hay bales. You're a hay farmer. I, I was a hay hauler. Uh, hey, hold on, okay. You know, hey, hey, alfalfa goes through a lot of stages, and uh, all my crew did was pick it up off the field and put it in barns or on trucks or in stacks and then go get more. And I moved a lot of hay. And uh, so uh, I worked with some pretty rugged guys. I mean, we were a, we were a, a, a motley crew, you might say. And uh, one of my friends, who I'd been friends with since kindergarten, and I'm still friends with him now, when we got to the hayfield on Monday morning, May 7th, 1979, I'm pretty sure that was the date, May 7th. I know it was a Monday. Uh, I could tell the minute I saw him that he'd become a Christian the night before <laughs> or the day before because uh, I just partied with him on Saturday. And I saw when he was walking up to the hay truck, I saw something different in him. And I recognized it. I knew what had happened. And uh, he, he started telling me all about his newfound life in Christ that he'd experienced the day before. And he just stayed with me like, like a lion on a lame deer all day that day, followed me home that night. I was mad. I was tired. I'd listened to him all day. And uh, he brought two other friends with him. And it was kind of emotional to me. I didn't expect this. I know. It was... Simon, it got me, kind of hit me hard this morning. Um, they came over to the house and wanted to pray. 
And uh, during that prayer, Simon, I, I started thinking about my life and my responsibilities and these two little babies in a room just down the hall from where we were praying in the living room. And they were, well, they were born in February, March, April, May. They were three months old at this time and looked like they were going to be good. You know, we had to take them through all these tests for eyesight and, you know, brain damage and all these things that they worry young parents with. And we'd come through so many of those tests and everything looked looked like it was going to be okay. And it obviously was. One of them's yeah. now an officer in the Navy, and the other's a uh, mechanical engineer. So they've done quite well. But uh, <clears throat> we were kneeling there on the floor, and I was thinking about all the responsibility that I had. And Simon, I, you and I have talked before about our family upbringings and how different, you know, we, we all come from different backgrounds. Yeah. And what I thought of was was my dad and uh, how much respect he had in our community, in the church, in the family. And dad was, if you could, uh, I've told people before, if you could open an encyclopedia and see a picture of a man of God, it'd be my dad. He, he followed the Lord so, so faithfully. And I was thinking about the things that I had accomplished at that point in time, and they didn't quite measure up. We had two stoplights in our town going east to west, and there was a tight-knit club of us who could drink a six-pack at the speed limit between the two stop signs, stoplights. And I thought, wow, that's all I've got? You know, that's, that's what I've got to hand to these kids? My dad could drink a six-pack between Stout and Maine. And uh, it just was pretty hollow feeling, Simon. And I, I felt like I have such a responsibility here. I'm a family man now. Just, you know, a year before that, I was a free spirit, 20 years old, you know, 19, and uh, not a care in the world. <laughs> and... and living the life that I thought was good. And I made my decision that night in May of 1979 to give my life to the Lord. And you and I have talked about that phrase before. It's not just a phrase. It's not just a cliche. There comes a time when we give our lives to the Lord. And uh, I did that in May of 1979. And then it's been an interesting journey since then. <laughs> well, it has for sure, and we'll get on to some of that stuff in a bit. But I think one thing I would say, I'll take from your faith story, um, Carl, is that, um, that your father was very impactful into your life. And, you know, mm -hmm. me, and, me and you have spoken mm -hmm. before. You know, I didn't have a father in, in my life. I had an absent father, and I yeah. used to think, well, why me? And, you know, I wanted that person. But what I've realized, and I don't want to embarrass you by the age gap between us, but mm -hmm. some might look at us and say, well, why is this black English guy? <laughs> I'm good friends with this mature man with gray hair and stuff. You know, how does it how does it happen? But, you know, what I learned and what I saw through your faith story is that it doesn't have to be the person that brought me into this world. You know, I've always had a father and that is he above. You know, and right. there's earthly people such as yourself, 
that have come into my life, but I'm really, really grateful they have with formed friendships, give me that guidance that I never had from a father figure. So hopefully that didn't embarrass you, but you know, I see a lot of similarities in what you said about, about your, your father's journey. Now you respected him. You're really sending that message to people beneath you. I'm sure your sons would, would, would sort of echo those, those statements. You know, I, I, my dad would probably raise up out of the grave if he heard me say that, you know, he was like the picture of a man of God. He would be the first to tell you, no, I'm not. Uh, you know, he, he, he had frailties like we all do. But, uh, you know, one thing that we all have is God the Father. And one of the, the amazing things that I've been able to watch in my own life is, is I have children who adopted children. My wife and I now have 20 grandchildren, and some of those were adopted out of the, out of just terrible situations, Simon. Just breaks your heart. And, and I talked to one of those granddaughters today. She's changing jobs and she called me you know because she needed grandpa's advice and she need money <laughs> no <laughs> she wasn't asking that she was just needing advice on what to do about a, a life situation but you know i learned so much through that adoption process and those adopted kids are every bit as much our own children as the natural ones and it just gives you a little bit of a glimpse into how god feels about us and when when we my wife and i look at our adopted grandchildren it's it's just such a rich story that uh, uh it just resonates what god is to all of us we are all adopted into him regardless Amen. of how good or bad our parents were or present or absent it doesn't matter that just it all it all just pales in comparison to what God is to us the love the unconditional love the the uh <clears throat> it, it's just there there's nothing on earth that can compare with the way God cares for us yeah, and Carl, you mentioned earlier about, you know, what would, uh, I can't remember how you phrased it, but you said something like, you know, that sort of God had noticed you or how was God going to use you into your, in your life? And, you know, there are some people that might have the misfortune of being around a deadly force incident or a bad situation with a firearm, you know, sadly in your life, but also a positive for society. You've been involved in too, you know, you had the, the hostage situation at New Life, uh, mm -hmm. And then you then have a sort of deadly force incident where your safety team had to sort of eliminate the threat. So what I'd like to know is, you know, when those um, deadly force incidents happen, and some people might not even know that about you and your background, but, you know, maybe you can take us through um, a sort of an elevator stories to how those incidents came. Sure. But what I'd like to try and get to is, you know, you talked about how you came to faith in 1979. When those sort of adverse things happen to you in your life, were there times when you reflected on your faith and said, you know, God, why me? Um, or why am I in this situation? Or why did these bad things have to happen here? So maybe just sort of tell us a little bit about those incidents and then maybe try and answer that question about, you know, did, were, were you sort of reflecting on your faith at all during those times? Hmm. 
Well, it makes me wonder if you were listening to my prayer this morning. <laughs> you know, why, why me? Why am I doing this? You know, I, I sent out an email to a bunch of people here a while back, you know, inviting them to consider becoming members of the FBSN and one you know, you get some really nasty emails back when you send out 10,000 and one of them says, what qualifies you? And I thought about that and I thought nothing, nothing, you know, uh, it's, it's not qualified. It's, it's what God called me into. And, and there's, there's times I sure wish he would have called somebody else. Um, and I, I sure didn't intend this. I, I, when, when I gave my life to the Lord in 1979, there was a real revival going on in our small community. All these guys that I'd partied with started dropping left and right and becoming Christians, and all of them were going off to Bible college. And they were all trying to get me to go to Bible college. And I told them all, I said, God needs ties payers too. You guys go on to college. I'm going to sit here and just keep working away. I'm rolling up my sleeves. I got a family to support. And little did I know I was going to have three more children before long. My wife and I have five. And uh, so I did. I just resolved myself to work and uh, I got out of the hay uh, out of agriculture, I did other things in the winter, but uh, it was all agriculture related. Got out of that in 1982 and went into construction. And uh, then in by 1991, I had an offer to go to work for Focus on the Family. I'd been up here in Colorado Springs. I was based out of Texas at the time. And my company sent me up here to manage some uh, relocation things that they were going through. <coughs> Excuse me. And by uh, the fall of 1991, Focus on the Family hired me. And I had been on the board of directors of our church and been the song leader and and uh, uh, Sunday school superintendent. I, I would preach occasionally when we didn't have a preacher. And uh, so I was very involved in our church, but I'd never really worked for a ministry. And this was the time of, of American history when there were scandals happening. And I won't drop the names, but there were well-known evangelists that were in trouble all across America and on the nightly news. And I kept wondering, who's this James Dobson? You know, is he going to be another one of those? But I went ahead and and made the decision to move up to Colorado and go to work for Focus on the Family. And it turned out to be a really, really good experience, Simon. And, and you were building uh, engineer, correct? I was. Yeah. I, uh, they used me for my construction skills to kind of manage some facilities-related stuff. And then as we started developing the new campus, um, I began working with the architects and general contractor and subcontractors and engineers, and we started putting together our campus. We had 82-acre campus and our first two buildings. Uh, the admin building was 250,000 square feet, and the ops building was 157,000. And uh, so I was working with them on putting these buildings together. And I was a blueprints and specifications guy. Uh, and we had a couple of incidents through the years that caused us to 
uh, kind of get heads up on security. We had a couple of bomb threats in 91 and 92. Those were my first touches with security. And because of that, we went ahead and, and uh, hired a security position, somebody who could uh, uh, have the, the responsibility of security. Well, I went ahead being building engineer. And then in April of 1995, uh, Oklahoma City bombing happened. And so the ministry came to me and two or three other managers there and asked us to put together a plan, take a look at our ministry, see if we were ready for something big like that. We did. We did. Uh, we, we stumbled upon this term that none of us had ever heard of before called risk vulnerability analysis. And we could get somebody else to do it, or we could do, go through it ourselves. And we decided to go through it ourselves and learn the process. And we did. We did a complete risk vulnerability assessment of the ministry, made some recommendations, made some changes. And the facilities department funded those changes. You know, we, we put in some devices and systems. And uh, a year later, a little over a year after the Oklahoma City thing, we were tested on that. We had a, a gunman come to the building. He was very upset, focused on the family, and uh, took hostages, and I was one of those hostages. And there were four of us held hostage for about an hour and a half. And uh, then about four and a half hours after we were released, he finally laid down his gun and came out and surrendered peacefully. And that incident changed my life, Simon. It, it really did. It, it made me start to wonder uh, uh, what is, what should we be doing as far as readiness? And I, for the next several years, I began slowly unplugging from blueprints and specifications into this new world of safety and security. And, yeah. and Carla, no, I'm not too sure if this was in your book, and I don't, don't want to embarrass you here again mm -hmm. after calling you dad. Oh, but you can't a, embarrass me. You're going to have to try a lot harder than that, son. <laughs> I know there's a key piece in that story where you've told me before, and I can't remember whether I've read it or you've told me, and, and that's, that's not a bad position to be in. But I know that you actually you were texting on your phone or you were looking at your phone as you were walking down the stairs to the reception oh. desk where the gunman was. Yeah, it wasn't because my it, phone, it was my watch. You got to remember, so you watch, 1995, I had a cell phone, but it was a brick. I, I had <laughs> one of the first cell phones that focused on the family, and it was a, it was a, you know, I, I mean, that thing was probably 12 inches long, had a little antenna on it, but oh, yeah. it, you know, I wasn't carrying that with me that day. Uh, when my alarm went off, I thought it was a secretary wondering what's this new button do we we had installed a system it's a duress system or a panic button system that uh, instead of it doing a ping or anything it would be a recorded voice that would come over our radios and tell us where an incident was and uh, we at the time, we were running just over 200,000 people, close to 250,000 guests a year through Focus wow. on the Family. So we knew that if our radio went off, we didn't wear earpieces or anything. We knew that if our radio went off and said emergency front desk, that everybody around us would uh, have reason to be concerned. So we didn't 
program it that way. We programmed it to just give us a location. And about 127 that afternoon of May 2nd, 1996, my radio went off, said administration building front desk. And I came down the stairs looking at my watch. I was looking at my wristwatch, wondering if this was a real situation, how long would it take me to get here? And I'll always remember the exact amount of time. I remember thinking 17 seconds, not bad. I could be here really quick if there was a real situation. Dropped my wrist down, looked up, and I was face-to-face with the gun. I mean, yeah, and didn't the man say something to you in particular about you were looking at him? I mean, obviously, he had a gun and he was upset and challenged anyway, but didn't he say something about, you know, don't look at me that way or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, that came about, oh, maybe an hour into the situation. I grew up around guns. I've been a hunter my whole life, um, and I respect gun safety a lot. And this guy was sitting in there. He had the two receptionists were his hostages that he was sitting right there close to. And then I was across the counter from him, uh, standing there just, just a couple of feet away from the counter. And he would talk with his hands. He had this Walther pistol. And he had it in his hand with the hammer pulled back and his finger on the trigger. And he was talking and he was very animated. And I was afraid, Simon, that he was going to shoot these ladies accidentally. (laughs) I mean, he was handling it. I I don't like being muzzled. Uh, He was muzzling both these ladies terribly and just, you know, two, three feet from their heads as he's talking with this gun and swinging it around. And I guess I was giving him a dirty look. I, I would, I, I'd probably still do that if somebody was swinging a gun around like that. But it showed, evidently, <laughs> because all of a sudden he got mad, he jumped up, he leaned over that counter and he put the gun in my forehead. And I remember he was holding it sideways. He just rammed it into my head and it was held sideways in his hand. And he said, you blankety-blank, you're looking at me like you're mad. And then he pounded his chest with his gun. He said, I'm the one mad, you mother, you know, and just kept ramming it back into my forehead. And, uh, you know, at at that point, Simon, um, I thought, so this is how it's going to end. I mean, you have those kind of thoughts when you can feel the muzzle in your forehead. And I wondered if there was anything I needed to do, any final prayer. (laughs) And Simon, I've told you and others before, the train didn't even slow up at that station. I knew where I was going. There was no question. I felt like I had time for one prayer, and that prayer was that my wife and my children would continue to laugh and find joy in this life, and that they wouldn't think that this was a traumatic thing because I was fine. Uh, you know, I, I knew where I was going and uh, I just, I wanted my, my time to pray was so limited. I just prayed for happiness on the part of my whole family. And uh, then 
no shot had gone off and I thought, Hey, I got time for another prayer. You know, Lord, have him put that gun down. <laughs> and he did. Maybe yeah. that should have been the first prayer call. You know, I don't know. It's yeah. <laughs> hindsight is a very, very cool, but you know, put a gun down first and then, and pray yeah. but, but it's good. I mean, and that's some of the things because, you know, there's been a lot of people that have come afterwards. I mean, you know, Stephen Williford has become a friend of yours and I've been privileged, privileged enough to have a couple of conversations with him and, you know, Jack Wilson has also found himself in a similar position. So it's always interesting to learn, you know, in that moment when we're talking about training and preparedness. And I know that you say, if you're not training, it's because you're saying it's never going to happen to me. Right. Um, but really understanding in those moments, you know, what, where, where is your faith in there? And I think for you, the Lord was giving you a sort of the peace of mind to know that your journey mentioned from your sons to where you were then you were in a good place to know that if this was your time, that you know you were you were happier to know know where you were going. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's right. But you know, what I learned in years after that, and I I came to grips with is, it's it's not enough to just know that you know where you're going because in our our uh, responsibilities, Simon, we're responsible for so many people around us, and we have to be serious about protecting them. And that's what led me even deeper into this subject of security is recognizing that, you know, if something happens to me, that's fine. I've, I've faced that train before. And, and you know, I, I know when God's timing is right, it'll be right. And I, I've told my wife that uh, uh, I don't have a lot of things on my bucket list, but one of them is stepping across that line and going into his arms. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. that's going to be a great moment. Uh, now, I don't want it to happen tomorrow. I still got a few things I want to do here, <laughs> but I, 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 don't, uh, I don't dread that, that moment. But what I do is I take very serious the safety of people around us. You know, when I was talking to my granddaughter today, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to tell her, and she's 21, uh, you know, I was telling her things that will will hopefully make her safer tonight and tomorrow and this week and for the next year and the next decade and when she becomes a mama. Uh, I, I want her to have a full life, and I want people around us to have a full and safe life. And that's yeah, what... Interesting. Doesn't come over, and it's um, there's a couple of things I want to pick up on. Said, but that full and safe life is a is a key one because I want to talk to you about you know how was your faith sort of tested or how did you persevere? Is that obviously you told to faith in 1979, and and by the way, I was born in 1978, Carl. I like to do little little. <laughs> but then you know this sad trend, which as best as it can do, has a positive outcome that, you know, the negotiator and, and the, you know, no one is hurt. But then years later, the Lord then tests you again when sadly the outcome isn't so positive. Another deadly force incident that happened at your church where, you know, a member of your safety team, and actually she was a former police officer from Minneapolis. You, I know she wasn't at the time in Colorado, has to eliminate the threat, which is really law enforcement term for they have to kill the perpetrators. So, you know, taking these building blocks as to challenges and obstacles the Lord has given you. What were you thinking the second time round, as in 
you know, Lord, here we go again. Were you feeling more prepared or what did it mean to you as, as your faith? Were you, were you challenged in any way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there were challenges that day, no question about it. And uh, uh, you're right, that was 11 and a half years later and three and a half miles away. Uh, the first incident was at Focus on the Family. And then uh, New Life Church is just three and a half miles straight north of Focus on the Family here in Colorado Springs. And we had started our, our life safety ministry in March of 2005. And the director of our security program there, a guy by the name of Roger Harrington, had uh, uh, petitioned to get some of us to be armed. And in those days, we couldn't hardly get law enforcement to be on the team. They came to church to worship. They, they didn't come to church to, you know, keep doing what they did all through the week. So our whole team was volunteers, and none of us were, were law enforcement, uh, except for the director. The director had had a background in law enforcement, but he wasn't in law enforcement then. And... Uh, uh, we didn't have, on our team, we didn't have a single current uh, duty law enforcement officer in 2009, uh, excuse me, 2007. But it was uh, December 9th, 2007, we had a gunman come in. And uh, as you know, and people know from reading the book, and I won't re rehash the whole thing, but killed two girls in the parking lot, came in the hallway, shooting down the hallway. He had a Bushmaster AR uh, modified to 6.8 millimeter, had a uh, um, handgun out and another one in his backpack and was coming to make good on a threat. He had written a suicide diatribe that day in which he said, uh, like Cho, Eric Harris, Ricky Rodriguez, and others, I'm going out to make a stand against this sick, evil religion. And then he said, Christian America, this is your Columbine. Of course, he was referring to our murder in the high school in yeah. 1999, just a few years earlier. And uh, we, our team responded to him. There were four of us remaining at the time that he came in the building. We'd had two services that morning. The second of the two services had ended at 1220, and his attack started about 111 in the afternoon. So it was after both services had been uh, dismissed, but there were still four of us on site, and two of us were armed. And all four of us went towards the sound of the gunfire, and you mentioned Jean a moment ago. She was down the hallway. Uh, she was about 25 yards from him and blindsided him on his left. I was about 85 yards from him on the same side of the hallway. So we had building features between us and he was actually had been shooting in my direction when Gene blindsided him from his left and uh, engaged him there, shot several times, hit him no less than two times and then he stuck his gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger, and it was over. And so, you know, um, being in and around that is tough. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of this with the sort of COVID-19, that perhaps people's resiliency 
to crisis management isn't where it needs to be. I mean, you know, when you tie that into how a church recovered and, and particularly your faith journey, mm-hmm. where were you most challenged after knowing that you know, people had died at your church? Well, that was just it. That was the biggest challenge. And fortunately, I've become very good friends with David and Marie Works, the couple that lost their their two daughters that day. And, uh, you know, it just, <clears throat> all of us on the team, all of us who were there that day would have given anything we could have to not have that be part of the story. But it is. We lost two precious lives. Those girls are gone. That family is impacted for the rest of their life. And uh, while we did some things right, uh, we did go towards the sound of the gunfire. We were prepared. We weren't as prepared as we should have been. I wasn't as prepared as I should have been. Nobody on the team was as prepared as they should have been. Uh, and recognizing that, yes, we did a good thing, uh, uh, Jean especially, she's the one who actually pulled the trigger and stopped the attack, uh, but we all had a contribution towards that. We all fought and faced the evil, but coming to terms with the things that we did not do well <clears throat> was really what set the pace for my speaking in these 15 years since, uh, or I guess it's 11 years, no, 12, 13, 13 years since, is when you go through something like that, you've got to be able to accept the things that you did not do well and help other people to see what could have been better. And that's what I always pray for people when I see somebody like Stephen Williford or Jack Wilson or anybody is, is my, my prayer is always, guys, you know, make sure you don't get out there and say it was all perfect. Because it wasn't, you know. There, there's things all of us can do better. There's things we can learn. And, and I think both of those guys um, have been good to recognize, you know, things they could do better and, and – uh, but we're getting better at this all the time, Simon, and, and there's so many now uh, starting to protect their churches. And the reason that we wanted to start our ministry, our, our association, is we want those protectors to do it right. We, we, th- I call this a great endeavor. Uh, it's not an industry. It's not a business, so to speak. It's a great endeavor. And what I mean by a great endeavor, there's people across this country that are farmers and bankers and lawyers and construction workers and tradespeople and and all these things that have nothing to do with security, but they have responded to a call to protect the people that they love in their churches. And so we're we're kind of the black sheep squadron in some ways. And, you know, the opponents of this, uh, we know that, that evil is out there and would love nothing more than to see some church security team really screw up bad and hurt innocent people. We know that that, that mindset is out there, uh, detractors that 
don't like churches for anything, and now they've found this group of of uh, uh, cowboys, as they sometimes call them, that are protecting their churches. And boy, they would like nothing better than to see a major mess up. And we don't want that to happen. We we want to help introduce all these teams to each other and help them grow together and find resources out there. Uh, you know, like your your program, your your security ministry training that you do. Uh, others, uh, I I told the Don't guys. Don't name others during this. Just say Simon's training. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there there's a lot of us doing this uh, in different capacities, and we're not well, we're be not competitors. We're yeah, and that was going to be my next question, Carl, because I know that I heard you speak um, on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I was almost given some amens from my living room, but because very similar to me as that. You know, there's some people that see us as competition, and I, similar to you, you know, not, maybe not misfortune led me to here, but the Lord led me to use the skills that He'd given me to the benefit right. of others. That's how I ended up in security ministry. But I have had people that see it as a competition, and it's not a competition. If right. you ask my wife, she will tell you that I put more financially into this than what I get out of it. But it is the Lord's. It is the Lord's work. Yeah. Um, so it's not. It's not a competition. We're all we're all here trying to make a house of worship safe. But you know, I can remember when I first met you. I think it was around four or five years ago now. You wrote a little message in your book, and I'm sure you can't remember what it was. But you know, I look at it sometimes and, mm. and reflect on it. But when you look at people like me, the next generation um, coming through to sort of help the fight in safety and security, what what advice would you give someone like me or people out there about? You know, what do we need to be doing to be um, not successful in business, but successful in sharing the message of making our churches more secure? What advice do you have? Well, I think you just, you summed it up yourself by one word you said there. You said sharing. Uh, you know, when I first got involved in this, we were silos of information. In fact, when we started the program at Focus on the Family in 1995, there weren't very many models to look at out there. There just, there just wasn't. There just wasn't a lot. And even when uh, uh, 10 years later, when we started the program at New Life Church in 2005, there were still surprisingly few models to go by out there. What we have now is we have a whole generation that's growing up and talking to each other. They're sharing what they know. So they're no longer silos of information. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's no reason anybody in today's day and age has to completely reinvent the wheel. There are ministries out there that are helping people. Uh, there are ways you can find somebody, whether it's just down the street or across the country. There's ways you can find somebody that'll help you write your plan that'll help you put stuff together. And, uh, you know, my advice to the, the younger folks just getting into this is get with your peers. Don't try to go it alone. Uh, find the information that exists out there and tap into it. And the next thing I would tell them, I had two conversations today with two different security directors who are frustrated uh, because they feel like they're, they're uh, uh, pushing rocks up a long hill, one of them said, or something like that, pushing, 
Uh, I can't remember how he, oh, he's in a face, a hard face wind. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I've heard all these different analogies, pushing a rope up a hill, pushing a, a lot of little rocks up a hill into a face wind. I know, I know. Um, but hang in there, uh, get encouragement because, you know, the best, I often tell my audiences, I often end my program by telling my audiences when I'm speaking to them that the best thanks I could ever get is thanks for nothing because I don't want anybody to have to use this stuff. And you're right. I tell people, if you're not training, you're saying it'll never happen here. I want them to train. I want them to be out there training. I want them training for the realistic stuff that probably will happen, slips, trips, and falls in the parking lot. <laughs> and I want them training for those things that are awful if they do happen, but a lot less likely to happen. Because if the dragon walks through your door, you've got to be ready. Uh, and, you know, people have told me, well, the chances of getting shot in church are about like getting struck by lightning. Well, yeah, probably if you're looking at the numbers, but that's why we don't golf in a lightning storm. You know, we, we know what the danger is and we take precautions. Yeah. And that's great advice, Carl. And I guess the, the last question I really have a last conversation before we start to wrap up is that, you know, I mean, you're someone I've respected for a long time. You know, you're an author, you're a presenter, you know, you're a writer, um, you're a thought leader in safety and security. There's a lot of things that, that you've done. But I guess another um, key piece that will help us understand who you are is who does Carl Chin respect? You know, who do you look up to? Who are those thought leaders that, that you go to for advice and stuff? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, you know, we tried this a couple of weeks ago and you asked me that question, but the recording didn't come out, but. Uh, Don't tell well, people that, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> this we is the 17th time we've recorded difficulty. this. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, thought a lot of that, uh, about that. And, and, you know, when you get my age or even younger, the people you, you go to for, your spiritual mentorship changes through the years. Uh, for me, the first several years, of course, was my own dad. Uh, and through time, my brothers, my older brothers, are people that I go to. But the number one go-to in my life is my wife. <laughs> There's so many times when the voice of God sounds a lot like my wife. <laughs> And uh, she's, she's just got this clarity and a way of seeing things that helps. And uh, I've also got a board member of, of the FBSN. Uh, it's the FBSN is a 501c3. And uh, our chairman of the board is really a pastor to me, James Friedman up in Detroit. And he's one that I could call with anything and just say, James, I need some advice. And uh, so, you know, we each find that person or persons who we can really talk with. And, and sure, we all have a direct relationship with God, but you've got to have somebody that you can confide in too. And another one is my friend from kindergarten who led me to the Lord that night in 1979. In fact, I'll be calling him when I get off the phone here. Uh, 
we we that can't to wrap it up say again is that a cue to wrap it up? <laughs> no, no. But uh, we've remained very good friends, and he's still in the ministry. He travels internationally and speaks uh, to groups and uh, supports international evangelists. He's mostly a support function, but uh, he's just been a, a good rock and friend through the years. Yeah, and I know um, I'll remind you of this because in case they do happen to listen to it, but they don't feel you've forgotten. But, you know, your good friend Jimmy Meeks and Dave uh -huh. Grossman as well, I guess. But you, know, you spend a lot of time on the road with them. And one of my life goals is to be in a car with Jimmy Meeks, Dave Grossman <laughs> and yourself going to a church event. So you, your challenge as my good friend is to make that happen. I could only imagine a conversation, but I know, I know they're good thought leaders that you look up to. Oh yeah, the, those you you just hit on two at the top right there. I I love both those guys and have been honored to to travel with them regularly. And uh, we just did our one hundredth event together last wow. October, and we've still got a few on the boards and uh, still doing a few together with them. And those are some of the funnest things I do is when I travel with Jimmy Meeks and Dave Grossman. And, and uh, it's, it, we have a blast together. They're, they're just good men. That's good. Well, Carl, it's been, you know, you're friends to me and you can talk for hours and hours, mm. um, but it's been really good to help others get to know who you are, because like I said, most of the time it's all about safety, security and, know you preaching a good word as to what we need to do so it's for you to take off the mask and tell people a little bit about who you are as an individual and share your faith journey so carl thank you for um joining I look forward to talking with you soon thank you simon i've enjoyed being able to talk about this this is this is heart stuff take care carl and that was my good friend carl chin of the Faith Security Network. And for anyone that doesn't know Carl Chin, you can Google, I believe his website is coldchin.com. You can visit the Security Network for more information. Um, and I shall see you next time.